0: Bienvenido al espectáculo de Cori Truax. It's not a democratic debate. I'm just kidding. I won't speak Spanish to you on the show. We're going to talk about that debate and a lot more on this edition of the Cory Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be having. You do not need to adjust the SAP or whatever they call that button on your broadcast. I am not speaking in Spanish. I just thought it'd be fun to make fun of the Hispanic pandering, the Hispandering, if you will, that Cory Booker and Beto O'Rourke or Robert O'Rourke and the other guy who did the Spanish speaking in the Democratic debate. Just thought it'd be fun to start out by making fun of those guys. And we will continue with that throughout the show. But first, my name is indeed Cory Truax, amongst many other things. I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 10.30 on, su- on Sunday mornings in Greenville, South Carolina. We'd Love to have you there any given Sunday morning. I'm also the host of South Carolina Connections. That is a podcast of the Palmetto Family Podcast Network. Anywhere you find podcasts, you can find South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax so that if you finish these 50 minutes of mine and you need 30 minutes more, you can go over there and find it. Indeed, on the show today, I, I think it's worth spending some time on the first Democratic debates that took place uh, for the uh, the contest to take on the current president in the general election. Uh, some other items I want to try to get to. I felt like Ben Shapiro and Mark Levin recently had a conversation that was helpful, especially in bridging the gap between older con- older Republicans and younger conservatives. I think there's something useful there in that conversation. I want to cover this lady who has accused the president of rape back about 20 years ago, Uh, and then also I had a great uh, listener email from Adam. So there's a couple other things I want to try to get to if we have the time. Uh, So we'll go ahead and get started here with one other quick thought before the Democratic debates. Whenever you're listening to this, if it's live on Christian Talk 660, it's the weekend of 4th of July or Independence Day, there's some possibility you're listening to this on Independence Day that it's likely the day that I'm going to publish it or the day before. And we should not let the holiday go by on the show without, without mentioning it. And I just have a couple quick thoughts for you. When I got into politics back in 2001, after reading some of the, the classics, and I did, I went back and did Leviathan, went back and read some of the, uh, Thomas Hobbes, read some of him, John Locke. I quickly got into the Founders, read the Federalist Papers, got Madison's notes on the convention, notes on Virginia from Thomas Jefferson. In totally recognizing the moral failings of some of our Founders, even while recognizing those, I came to a deep affection for our Founders. I came to a deep affection for the 57 men who fi- signed the Declaration of Independence. I think it's the 54, 54 57. can't remember how many signed the Constitution. Yeah, I, I just think about what it meant when they get together in 1787 in Philadelphia and they write the words that, that come soon after Benjamin Franklin said, if we don't hang together, we'll all hang separately. And they, they wrote to each other this compact that we will pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. And they meant that very literally. That we have founding fathers in the country that in the face of royal tyranny during the Enlightenment period when we start to recognize as people that this is no way to run governments— the, the divine right of kings over people, the, the sovereign families of the planet. This is no way to run the government. This, that we would have a, instead a government by the people and for the people. When they say we will pledge together our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor, they meant that. Knowing that if they lose, they will be hanged. Knowing that if they lose, and even if they win, they might go broke. In these fortunes that they had that they were willing to die because of their honor, knowing that they had the moral position over the over the King of England and George the third and I came to a deep affinity for them as men and their bravery, despite their moral failings and then I come to appreciate those ideas, how revolutionary they were. I appreciate so deeply the articulation of Thomas Jefferson that we hold these truths, the truths I'm about to tell you, we hold them self-evident. So I don't need any other argument. This is self-evident. On its face, it is obvious and intuitive to the heart of man. We hold this truth to be self-evident. All men are created equal. And we're so into equality now that doesn't sound as revolutionary and as rebellious as it is, but Thomas Jefferson and those 57 men saying, All men, hey, King George, all men are created equal. You are not better than us. You dukes and you earls, all of those born of high accord, high bloodlines, no, you're not special. We we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And not that they are just born equal, but they are created equal. A foundational principle that... We are not our own, that we are created. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that we are endowed. For a minute, I lost the word, and I'm doing this off the top of my head. I've got to stop doing this show off the top of my head. The uh, We are endowed by our Creator. Again, Creator. We're given Creator cer- by our Creator certain inalienable rights. Rights that we cannot have separated from us. Inalienable rights. Among them... So they're not limited to these, but among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At the beginning draft, it was property, life, liberty, and property. That you cannot, by fiat, deprive of us pr- deprive us of our lives. You cannot by fiat deprive us of our liberty to interact with each other and trade with each other and help one another, and you cannot keep from us our property. The the wages we have earned, the the object and the result of our labor. These were fundamental ideas, and they were revolutionary ideas. That we were not endowed by a royal, endowed by a king, endowed by our betters with our life and our liberty and our property, but endowed by our Creator. The average years that a constitution a governing document has ruled a country in the last i think it's 300 years the average is about 17 years i believe italy is on our sixth or seventh constitution germany's on like five or six most of the norwegian countries or shoot, not, uh, scandinavian most of the scandinavian countries of which one is norway there are, i think there are dozens of constitutions so the average Constitution in the modern day governs a country for 17 years, and we are going on since 1787 when it was written, 1789 in its affirmation among the states, its enactment. Two, over 200 years with this Constitution that was amended, and certainly as we see, courts have weakened it, Courts have tried to destroy it. We've had politicians in the past, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, chief among them. It, they they tested the bounds of the Constitution, tested the stability of the Constitution. But it still stands. And so we have flaws in this country. I understand pessimism around the country. But there should also be a recognition That the foundations of our nation are good. That the men who took the risk to start that revolution, despite their flaws, did a fundamentally good thing. And the men and the women and the boys who sacrificed to win that war deserve our veneration and our respect and our celebration. And this is a time that we should also stop and recognize our uniqueness. There isn't another place like this. Coming from a Christian perspective, I still recognize that I'm homesick for another country. I'm not first American. and Boy, we got our flaws. And I can't wait for the kingdom of God to be established on this earth but if you have to be born anywhere in human history, the United States of America in this era is not a bad time to do it. So it's a good time to be grateful and thankful as well that we've gotten to live here and grow up here. We can be proud of our history despite its dark, its dark spots. One last thought on this. There was a time in my political activism that one of my big themes was that we needed to restore America, restore it, that we had lost the values that we had in the foundational. Era that we lost the values that made us such a superpower in such a short amount of time, relatively. We lost the fundamental ideas of individualism and capitalism that made us such an innovative powerhouse on this planet. And what we need to do is restore America, restore what once was. It was around 2014 or 15 that I recognized that's not resonating anymore. Going back... To the things, to the way things were. Restoring what was just isn't resonating with people. I started to use a new word. Instead of restore, I started using renew. That America didn't need restoration, it needed it needed to be renewed. Part of that is spiritual, that we need a renewing of the mind, that we need a a, a people that's not so secular. We know we had this fundamental idea in the found in the founding documents that we were gonna be very free and have this small and limited government. And if you're gonna be free and have a small and limited government, you're going to need a very moral people. And if your people are immoral, well, you're gonna need government to grow. And government has grown partly because we are such an immoral people. And so we needed this renewal spiritually in a renewing Of our minds, but also generally, we're so far from where the Constitution was, these ideas of individualism and capitalism, they're they're now revolutionary again. They're the new trendy thought. We don't need restoration, we need something renewing. But we can look back glowingly on from which we came. When we come back from this break. Uh, as much as I want you to feel encouraged about our foundations, where we are right now, especially in the political landscape, isn't exactly encouraging. So we're going to go through the Democratic debates. I've got some thoughts on some of the things that were said there. And maybe try to look ahead a little bit to the 2020 campaign as well. We'll get started on all that and a lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Hello there. Welcome back to the Cory Truax Show. Hey, would you be so kind as to connect to the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram? If you look for me, Corey Truax, you will find the show there. And I do a whole lot out there on Instagram, a little on Facebook, and a lot less on Twitter because everyone is super mean on Twitter. Nevertheless, uh, that's a good way to get more content throughout the week. If you are listening to the show on the podcast, as more, more and more of you are doing, If you would review the show, give it ratings, it it will continue to help the show grow so that other people can see that you're there. I would even mention, and I do stuff on the fly, it's always risky. I believe this young lady's name was Sharon. She went to my Facebook page and just, I found it, here it is. Sharon said on the Facebook page, uh, I've been listening for a while, thanks for being original and not just part of an echo chamber. That was hugely meaningful to me. I deeply appreciate that kind of encouragement. And you can find the show on any of those social media routes, or you can do it at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. Additionally, you can call the Anchor app. If you have the Anchor app on your phone, you can leave a voicemail for the show. We can play that audio as well. Next up, I'm going to use The Guardian. I'm a fan of foreign media, much more than any of the American media. I like to try to get the international media's view. It's still fairly left-wing, but it's it's biased in a different way. Uh, and the Guardian put together a three-and-a-half-minute package of the highlights, if you can call it that, of the Democratic debate night number two. Because night number one was basically Elizabeth Warren. She was the only person that really mattered on that stage. Uh, that was also the night when people spoke Spanish for some reason. Uh, but Beto, Robert O'Rourke, who I actually got—if you remember, and I wish none of you would remember, during the early part of this primary campaign for the Democrats, I said it was going to be him. I said Beto O'Rourke would be the nominee. I was wrong. He is not going to be the nominee. And he's the one that randomly, for no reason whatsoever, started to speak Spanish so they could pander to a voting block. Uh, So this package that Guardian put together is only for night number two, with some of the bigger names. And I'm just going to start it and stop it along the way, respond to some of the things that happened on that first night of the Democratic debate. So, excuse me, night number two. It opens up with them all just arguing with each other. And uh, so it, it sounds kind of chaotic, but we'll pop right in here pretty soon. So here we go with the Guardian's highlights of the night number two de- Democratic debate. You so sorry. Hers. We will let
1: all Hey okay, guys, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table.
0: Yeah. So I'm glad they started there because I was asked, did anyone w- did anyone win the debates? And if anyone did, I thought it was Kamala Harris. She was the most prepared. She seemed electable, which is something that I think Democrats care about a lot. She seemed more energetic than like a Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. I mean, I didn't like any of them uh, on policy or on a personal level, really. But she had the best night, and they opened with a Kamala Harris highlight there. Now, second part of that, it's also really insulting. And the word I'm looking for is escaping me, but it's when you talk down to somebody. Uh, Condescending. Very condescending. They don't want to see a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. No, I'm not, Kamala. I have no interest in how you're going to put food on my table because I do that. And that is that paternalistic, condescending, nanny state garbage you get from the left wing. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. No. No, we don't. I don't even think that's a majority of Democrats. But that's how Democrats think about people is that they are our mommy and our daddy. And they're supposed to take care of us. Here is more of the Guardian's highlights.
1: Vice President Biden, do you agree today, do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then? No,
0: do you agree? I did not
2: oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education.
0: this is another reason that she had a good night. She she landed a punch there on Biden, just straight up. That was that was hard. Two thoughts on it. One, if this doesn't damage him, he's going to be the nominee. Uh, Cory Booker already tried to do this. Cory Booker has already tried to say Joe Biden was friendly to segregationists. Now she's attacking on the bussing thing. Joe Biden's primary support right now is with African American voters. The reason he's leading is the the Democratic Party's primary is disproportionately black, disproportionate to the general population, and because Biden was Obama's VP, he gets a lot of that African-American vote. If this does not damage him, she landed that punch. Like, she really prosecuted that case well. And if he is not damaged by it in the polls, there is no touching him. He's going to win this nomination. If the black vote stays behind Joe Biden, he cannot lose this primary, and that's why they're going after him in that way. And he, being the front runner, he got most of the heat, most of the attacks or on Biden. And I would even commend the NBC uh, moderators, which is hard for me to do. It's hard for me to say nice things about the media, but they were hardest on Biden and Bernie. And Biden and Bernie are the, the leaders, and so they deserve the most scrutiny, and they did that to them. The second thought on there, though, was, this is another thing that's intellectually lazy out there on the left. There is this idea that if you're unwilling to use the government to force something, then you're not for it. So, if you're, or like if you're not uh, willing for the government to pay for something, you're not for it. So, like they, in this democratic debate on abortions, for example, if you're unwilling for the government to pay for abortion, then you're not really for abortion. So, you could be for, I'm for every abortion being legal all the way to the point of birth. You just got to pay for it yourself. You can't use tax money. And this Democratic Party, if you're not willing to use the government to pay for or force what you want, then you're not really for it. And that's backward, and it's dark thinking, and it's dumb, but that's the thinking Kamala Harris used here to attack Joe Biden. If you weren't for the forced busing of students, then you weren't for integration. You must be racist. I'll go ahead and say it because I'm not going to ever run for anything. If I would have been a politician back then, I would have been anti-busing. I would have been, not for government, forcing integration. We needed integrated schools, and we need integrated communities. The racism of the time is immoral, it's ungodly, it's unbiblical, and I would have been saying all that, too. I would have been talking about the immorality of the racial bias in any group. But no, I'm not thinking we need to use tax money to uh, bus people 45 minutes from their house to a school just so that we can say we're forcing integration. Joe Biden's position is the correct position at the time, but now looking back on it, the way Democrats think now, it becomes a liability for him. Here's more of the Guardian's highlights of the second night of the Democratic debates.
1: That's why we need to pass the ERA.
0: I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then Senator Joe Biden. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. If we're going to solve the issues of automation... Eric Swalwell Swalwell there attacking Biden on his age and how long he's been around. Biden's response, I recall, was not exactly a Reagan response, you know, Reagan got that attack from Mondale in 84 and Reagan said, uh, I refuse to make age a, an issue in this campaign. I refuse to use my opponent's youth and inexperience against him. So Reagan had this very, uh, (laughs) really clever, uh, comeback for it. Biden had no comeback. Biden was unprepared. Like, I don't know how you got through preparation and no one on your team said, Hey Joe, they're going to say you're old. You should have a comeback for that because his comeback was, uh, "I'm not ready to give up that torch, Eric. That was all he had. Uh, and so, but he did body language wise, Biden did well. He smiled at it, he laughed at it, uh, but that was another attack on Biden that night.
1: Pass the torch. Senator Sanders, I'll give you ten seconds just to ask the answer the very direct question, Will you raise taxes for the middle class in the Sanders administration?
0: People who have health care on the Medicare for All will have no premiums, no deductibles, no co-payments, no out-of-pocket exp- out expenses. Yes, they will pay more in taxes. I can't believe I'm going to say it. I appreciate Bernie Sanders for that. This is one of my one of my big pet peeves on the show. Uh, if you recall a few months ago, I, I did an entire, probably 30 minutes on this I just wanted someone to treat American voters like adults. If you want a bunch of stuff, you have to pay for it. There's not free. There is not free health care. There's not free retirement. There's not free college. None of it exists. I wanted politicians like Bernie Sanders to treat Americans like adults. If you point towards Norway and Switzerland and Sweden and how they have so much stuff that's, quote, free, you also need to say, also, the average income earner there, so in America, someone who's making around 50 grand, the average income earner is paying more than 50% of their income in taxes. You need to say it. Because when you do this dumb thing folks on the left do, we're going to tax the millionaires and the billionaires, and we're going to tax Amazon and and, and Netflix. We're going to tax those who have all these the super high incomes, okay, that'll get you like 15% there. Where are you going to get the rest of it? You, there's not enough money at the high end to pay for these things. It doesn't exist. And so for Bernie Sanders to admit, yeah, if we if we do Medicare for all, yes, you will pay more in taxes. And now he needs to be specific and admit you will pay drastically more in taxes if he is elected. But less in health care for what they get. And I am determined to bring about a day when a white person driving a vehicle and a black person driving a vehicle, when they see a police officer approaching, feels the exact same thing, a feeling not of fear, but of safety. I am determined to bring that day about. Pete Buttigieg there, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. If, If Kamala Harris came out best in the debate, he came out smartest. Uh, looking back on some of those highlights, he doesn't imp- – let me say it this way. I know I come across as arrogant. I'm going to say it anyway. I'm positive I'm smarter than most of these politicians. Like if we sat down and took an SAT, sat down and take an LSAT or a GRE, like I'm going to beat most of them. I'm going to have a higher score. I think Pete Buttigieg is smarter than I am. I'm basically positive he has a much broader vocabulary. He has a better control of his language. That the guy knows more stuff than I do. He's read more than I've read. That's as far as I can go in complimenting him. If he were smart, he would stop doing what he was doing. Uh, Let me give you a little, uh, I guess this is strategic talk. I think what most Democrats have decided is Joe Biden owns the moderate voter. About 40% of Democratic voters say they are moderate. And, D- and Joe Biden's going to get them all. And so all these other folks, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, they have been trying to out-crazy each other going to the left because their idea is, I can't compete with Joe Biden, so I have to win the left wing and then I can be the nominee. Pete Buttigieg is not nearly as liberal as he pretends to be. He's, tr- he's pretending to be a left-wing nut job. He's not. His record isn't that. What Pete Buttigieg should be doing is saying to Democratic voters, I'm the better Joe Biden. I'm younger. I'm more articulate. I'm smarter. You should look to me if you're looking for the moderate choice in the party. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. If you are president, what specifically would you do with the thousands of people who try to reach the United States every day and want a better life through asylum?
1: I will ensure that this microphone that the president of the United States holds in her hand is used in a way that is about reflecting the
0: values of our country. I can't stand Democratic voters for that junk. This microphone that she would hold in her hand. Oh, she used the female pronoun. That's all so exciting. Not about locking children up,
1: separating them from their parents.
0: If you'd ever told me any time in my life that this country would sanction federal agents to take children from the arms of their parents,
1: put them in cages, actually put them up for adoption,
0: in Colorado we call that kidnapping, I I would have told you... I, I would have told you it was un... This is Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado, by the way. Believable,
1: Governor, you're right. It is kidnapping. And it's extremely important for us to realize that. If you forcibly take a child from their parents' arms, you are kidnapping them. And if you take a, a lot of children and you put them in a detainment center, thus inflicting chronic trauma upon them, that's called child abuse. This is collective child abuse.
0: That's not true at all. On the immigration thing, this is where... I tell you who won the debate, especially on immigration. You know who won the immigration debate on the Democratic stage? Donald Trump won the immigration debate because they just said insane things like that. No, it's not child abuse. You broke the law. You came across the border illegally. Guess what's going to happen? There's going to be l- legal processes that take place. Because what else do you want us to do? Just let you into the inter- like, just send you to Kansas and let you out on a bus? Like what do you want? It's, of course, not child abuse, and, of course, it's not kidnapping.
1: And when this is crime, both of those things are a crime, and if your government does it, that doesn't make it less of a crime. These are state-sponsored
0: crimes. And that's the end of the Guardian's highlights. I have some more thoughts there, so here we go. Uh, Democratic debates, here's the thoughts I wrote down. Number one, Kamala Harris did come out the best in the first round here. If she doesn't get a bump right now, she's in trouble because she had the best night. She needs a bump out of this. Number two, for America, they're all disasters. Every single one of them. Over two nights, every single one of them would be a disaster for the economy, on foreign policy. There, there is chaos with, with these types of candidacies and the ideas that they have. There's even higher deficits in debt than we're already running, and we're already running too high of deficits. Every single one of them is, is a disaster. One of them was asked the night before. I think it was the night one debates. They were all asked, what's the number one threat to the United States? A couple of them said Donald Trump. That's idiotic. Listen, I'm not a fan of the guy. He's a scoundrel. He's also not a threat to the United States. He's been a threat to some some standards on morality and ethics in office, but he's not the biggest threat to the United States. If you ask... Who is the biggest threat to our collective morality? I might go with him, but not just a threat to the United States. Uh, he, this is another thing they did that made me nuts. They all—they all got questions about the economy, and they tried to convince the viewers that the economy is bad. Like Elizabeth Warren was asked about a, asked a question on economics, and they talked about how the economy has been growing, how unemployment is at a record low. And the first thing she did was, well, yeah, the economy's doing great for the wealthy. The economy's doing great for rich people, but no one else is feeling it. If your strategy is to try to convince the American people that their lives are bad, you're going to lose. Listen, you don't have to like the president to recognize, hey, I'm getting raises, and unemployment's really low, and wages are starting to up a little bit. In a way, for, actually the economy's going quite well. You don't need to like the president to see reality. That's If their argument really is try to convince the American people their lives are worse off, they're going to be crushed. It's not going to work. Donald Trump will crush any of these if that is their strategy. The best strategy to beat Donald Trump is the one that Joe Biden primarily is trying to use. He's not saying your lives are bad. He's saying your lives feel chaotic because of the chaotic personality in the White House who has power, he seems unstable, he goes out on Twitter and does crazy things. And don't you want normalcy? Don't you want to return to a normal feel in your life? So elect me. Joe Biden's making the right argument. If they try to argue that the results are bad, they will get crushed. Because you can't argue with this. The economic results are good. Assuming we don't go to war with Iran, the foreign policy results are good. These are fundamental, objective facts. The downside of the Trump administration is the immorality. It's the lack of ethics. It's the garbage behavior. It's the immaturity. That does degrade the nation. It does degrade us as people. It degrades the office. That's the argument you can make, and every time they were asked about the economy, they tried to convince the viewers that the economy was bad, and if that's the if that is their strategy, he will walk away with it and so and for a lot of you listening, you go, that sounds great. I hope he walks away with it i don't I'm not particularly attached to the outcome, but I tell you strategically, that was a terrible um strategy that they brought up there. When we come back, I want to talk about one more point from the Democratic debate, and it has to do with the, the, what they said about the border and immigration, and then we will move on to several other stories. No sports segment this week, so we got plenty of time for other content. We'll do all of it when we come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. <music> Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. Glad you've stuck with us here all the way to the end. I want to finish up. The discussion of the Democratic debates, and then we'll move on to some other ideas. It is, is uh, let me say it this way, it is most likely that one of the top three issues in the campaign coming up, whoever the Democratic nominee is, and then the against the president, is going to be how we handle the border and immigration. The strategy and the tactics undertaken by the Democrats in their debates say to me that they are going to lose that debate to this president because what they talked about is irrational. It's not just compassionate. Like, there is, uh, a, there is an argument to be made against this president's immigration policy and how we've handled some things when it comes to compassion. They went well beyond compassion all the way to other utter insanity. I will give you some examples. So all of them said, every single one, that we should not deport anyone who's here illegally. And also all of them indicated that their health care plans would cover people who are here illegally. So literally, I mean this, I'm not overplaying it. This is not hyperbole. The democratic position on illegal immigrants in health care is this. If you can get here, we should pay for your health care. If anyone on planet Earth can get themselves into this country, all of the planet, 7 billion people, we should pay for your health care that's insane that's dumb it's stupid and if you're in the middle even if you don't like the president you're upset about how he behaves and he embarrasses you that's really the number one that's the number one emotion i have around him is he embarrasses me i'm embarrassed by him the even when you're like that you hear them going yeah anyone who wants to come should be able to come and stay and we should pay for their health care all right that's dumb that's a dumb way to think you can run a country. And as a garbage a person as the president is, he doesn't say stuff that dumb about the topic. You, here's how you need to understand it. If you want to have a welfare state, you must have borders. This is one of the reasons that places like Norway and Sweden have had welfare states. They don't let immigrants in. They have some of the lowest numbers of allowing refugees and immigrants because what they're saying is we're going to have a welfare state. We're just going to care for ourselves. We can't have other people coming in and taking the resources, so we're going to have a big welfare state. You can't have a welfare state and open borders. You can only have one. So if you want open borders and anyone can come in, then you have to dismantle all the programs of giving money away. Which by the way, that's my position. I'm, I am for basically unfettered immigration. If someone wants to if someone wants to come here and try, I want them to be able to come here and try. But I don't want them to get any money out of my pocket or yours. I am basically for unfettered immigration. Making it really easy for anyone and any number of people that want to come here, you can come. You're getting nothing from the government, though. You're getting no—that's not who we want. If you're coming to get benefits of other people's work, we don't want you here. But anyone who wants to come and make their own living and pay their own way, I don't care where you're from. You're from my home country of the Ivory Coast. I call it my home country because I was born there. You're from Australia, New Zealand, you're from Latin America, wherever you're from. You're from Egypt, you're from Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. If you want to come here and make your own way, come on over here and try. I'm for everybody on the planet coming here if they if they, they want to try that. But then we have to dismantle our welfare system. You cannot have both. You can have one or the other or or neither. And so I am for no welfare state and basically no borders. But you can't have welfare state... And no borders. That's not how it works. One other thought on border policy. They seem, on that debate stage, to have no interest in deterring people coming across the border illegally. The most moral and the smartest immigration policy is one where we discourage people from coming into the country illegally. Here's why. If people believe they're not going to be able to get in... You will start to see a diminishment of those making very dangerous treks. You see, down on the border, this picture that went viral of a father and a, I think it's a two-year-old girl, face down in a river, drowning, trying to get across that border. Well, what we what we know is they, we, thus far as we know, they had no. True asylum claim. They were economic migrants. Dad just wanted a better life. He actually had a job at Papa John's in his home country of I think it was it was Guatemala Guatemala or El Salvador. El Salvador, and his wife worked another fast food job. They had an okay ish life. They wanted more of a life. I understand that, but when then they were thinking they were going to get very little. Opposition, They were able to get the country easily, and so they made the mistake of trying, and they tragically died. It is the moral thing to set up a deterrent so that people stop doing risky, hard things to try to get into the country. Moreover, we talk about the morality of it for Democrats on that stage. They talk about the separation of families. They talk about the inhumane... Uh, the inhumane conditions down on the border. I generally agree that a lot of those conditions are inhumane and they should be better. You know who also is trying to do that? Republicans. Republicans have bills in the House and the Senate to fund all the beds that Democrats want down there, to fund all the medicine and to fund all the uh, the, the different shelters you want to build so in pe- beds so kids can sleep in beds instead of on the floor. And Democrats won't fund it. Democrats won't fund those things because they want the pictures, because they want the political point to be able to say there's people on the border suffering and it's the Republicans' fault or it's Trump's fault. They don't, Democrats don't care about how these things are going on the border. Otherwise they would fund it. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez this week was trying to, uh, was cheering on the workers of Wayfair. Wayfair is a company that was providing beds to the facilities down on the border so kids could sleep in beds instead on the floor. She was encouraging their, those workers to walk off the job. So, so that, the, the way they say that is because you don't want to be providing furniture for these facilities. Oh, really? You don't want to provide beds to these kids? And so that you are making a political point at the detriment of those at the border. If this is going to be their border policy, again, he's not skilled at it. That real estate mogul can prosecute the case against a Democratic candidate if this is going to be their insane border policy. All right, that's enough of the Democratic debates. Next up, I'm going to play for you some audio. Ben Shapiro, who I say is the most important voice in conservative media, he's also the future of conservative media if he's not already the right now of it, he had Mark Levin on his show. These two guys are interesting to me in the Republican primary 2016 because they're the true real conservatives. They were never Trump people. And then Mark Levin, basically because he's terrified of Hillary Clinton, voted for Hillary uh, excuse me, voted for Donald Trump in 2016. He's become much more of a Trump supporter. Ben Shapiro says he's going to vote for Donald Trump in 2020. And they got together and had a very adult conversation about what was going on. Uh, Well, actually, they had a very broad conversation, but part of it was about the president. And Ben Shapiro says something here that I have also experienced, and I think it's worth exploring in the ethos of the difference between young conservatives and older Republicans. And I know I'm 33, but I would also call myself a younger conservative. Here is Ben Shapiro talking about the schism between the two.
2: I, I do wonder still about the, the possibility that his personality alienates a lot of people. You know, I, 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 it's interesting. I speak to groups of older Republicans and groups of younger Republicans a lot. And when I critique the president in front of older Republicans, they start to get a little uptight. They start to get a little upset because I'll say what I think of his character. And uh, frankly, it's not complimentary generally. Uh, and then I'll say, and I love a lot of his policy and I'll vote for him. And a lot of older folks get a little upset with this. And if I say it to younger people, it's the only reason they would even consider voting for Trump is because I'm saying to them what I think they believe too. And what I've said is I think the reason for that is when you're older, you basically look at politicians and maybe you have the perspective, okay, well, you know, listen, he's a guy, he does stuff I want, good, what do I care what he does, mm-hmm. what he says? And when you're younger, you spend an awful lot of time considering what other people think of you. And so how you view President Trump has now become a lens that other people view you with. So if you're 21 and I, you say that I, you like President Trump, or that you're voting for President Trump, people immediately go to, well, that's because you're a terrible person who supports everything about him.
0: Shapiro has a really good point here on two things. And I don't think I fit into either of those categories, really. But I have found that too. Older people are really attached to Donald Trump. They really like him. And I've been confused by that because it's the older people in my life that told me not to like Bill Clinton, because Bill Clinton was a scoundrel and a bad person. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. Some of you won't like it. I'm going to say it. I'm I'm right. If you disagree, you're wrong. Donald Trump's a worse person than Bill Clinton. Morally, throughout their lives, he's a worse person. He's done more bad things. And he seems proud of his bad things. Bill Clinton had, I don't know, some of the sense to try to hide it. But older people, I guess, see politicians as a vehicle. Like, he's just a vehicle to policy. And so I don't care who he is and how he behaves. And so I will admit, you know, since the Trump administration started, um, yeah, the vehicle's been pretty good, guys. I have some, um, the tariffs have been stupid. They're idiotic policy. Beyond that, policy's been pretty daggum good. The policy's like an A-minus kind of policy. And the personal behavior has still been like a D, maybe an F. And so apparently for older people, they get uptight when you say anything bad about them at all. Because it's the policy's good. Stick with the policy. But for younger folks, now he's saying here, young people care because of how it makes them appear to their peers. And Shapiro, one of Shapiro's big things on Donald Trump is, even if we're getting good policy right now, we're not playing the long game. Because he is going to make conservatism, Donald Trump's going to make conservatism and republicanism so poisonous to the next generation, then these are your only four years to eight years. And after Donald Trump's gone, you've, you have ruined everything because all the, the voters 40 and under are embarrassed to even be around the guy. I told you that's even my most common emotion around the president. He embarrasses me. And so Shapiro's thought has been, yeah, you're getting good policy, but are you guys even thinking about what's going to happen 10 to 20 years from now? Is he ruining us for the next 10 to 20 years? And so that's been partly my thought, and mine's primarily just the moral thought. I don't like being associated with garbage people, and it seems like older people don't care if they're associated with garbage people. I wanted to get you some of Mark Levin's response on that, but uh, we got to move on. I have like five minutes left, and I had one more point I absolutely wanted to make today. And that point comes from uh, a recent sermon. So uh, I only preach at Beechwood 12, 14 times a year, maybe 15 at the most— And here recently I finished a series in Mark, and I wanted to bring to you one of those points, especially around this. We've had a very political show today. That's very rare for me. I think you can admit that. Most of my shows are not political. And here's what I want to bring you. We recently went through the beginning part of the book of Mark, and in that you get a a roster of the disciples that Jesus calls. And Jesus calls a really diverse group of people, especially ideologically. He calls Simon the Zealot, whose position was to throw off Roman rule, but he also called Matthew the tax collector who was to work his political position was to work with the Romans. And you have to imagine over the three years of Jesus' ministry, Simon the Zealot and Mark the tax collector, they had some discussions about how they should handle politically the Romans. He called Bartholomew, who was very easy to convince of anything, like he had just a really strong faith, and he called Thomas, who we think of as Doubting Thomas. Jesus called to himself people that were very different. And it brought to mind this old uh, phrase, you probably have all heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water. We have, uh, our, our our understanding of that in American culture has been family matters. When you say family, Blood is thicker than water, what you're saying is. Blood that binds us, it matters more than the other relationships we have, you know, so don't forget your family. But the original quote is actually me- the opposite meaning. The quote is attributed to a Scottish general, and the full quote was this. The battle, no, that's not it. Yes, here it is. The blood of battle is thicker than the water of the womb and what he was saying is it's actually water that joins you and your brothers and sisters it's water that joins you to your father and mother it's the water of the womb but the true connection you have is through the blood of battle it's those you do life with it's those that you do battle with that is your true brother and jesus even in that same passage he's he's got someone coming in and saying your brothers and your mother are looking for you and jesus says back to them who are my brothers and my mother These people who I'm talking to that do the the will of the Father, they're my brothers, and they are my mother. And it's this thing for us to remember if you are listening to me and you're part of the Christian faith. There is this family of God that's timeless. It does not have geographic barriers. And whether you like it or not, if you're a follower of Jesus, you and I, I'm your brother. You may not like me in your family, but I'm there, guys. He's not kicking me out. And we have this beautiful reality that even in the 12 people that Jesus called to himself there were political differences there were philosophical differences but they were unified around Jesus and even in the politi- in the uh, in the world in which we live in the families that we have there are disagreements about medical decisions and financial decisions there are decisions about politicians there's all kinds of separation but If you are in Christ, we are in one big family together. And we can have those disagreements and still be kind to each other, still love each other, and still keep the first thing first. The first thing is the building of the kingdom of God, and then we keep those other things as secondary issues. On the way out here, let me encourage you to do this. South Carolina Connections. South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax is my other show. It's the other podcast produced by the Palmetto Family Council or Palmetto Family Podcast Network. You can find that wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you're listening live on WLFJ, Christian Talk, 92.9 FM, you can find it anywhere podcasts are distributed, and I hope you will. There's more content there for you this week. Also, more content for you is at CoreyTruax.com, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find me out there on those social media sites. And please do. You can reach the show at Show at gmail.com, show at gmail.com. Send me comments, questions you want covered on the show. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.